Hello and welcome to Coexisting. It's 2020 and due to the coronavirus making its way across the world, we find our towns and cities in lockdown in an effort to slow the pandemic. I'm Lara Lightbody, the producer of this show. Apart from the COVID headlines filling our screens, I was curious to hear how people were living day to day. So I asked the same eight questions to people in different countries to get a glimpse of their lives during their version of Shelter at Home. It's part information, part human story archive, but mainly trying to get an uplifting bent on this insane situation we find ourselves in, and at the same time preserving these memories in audio. Memories that will, in a few short months, be forgotten. So, plug in those headphones or that speaker, grab a cup of tea or a glass of the good stuff and take a seat. This is Coexisting. My name is Michael and I'm based in Dorset in the south of the UK and I'm a Senior Research Fellow in Global Health at the University of Southampton. The date is 16th of December 2020. We are approximately nine months from the original lockdown here in the UK, which has been on and off since then, um, sheltering with my wife and two children at home. So I'm based in my spare room at home, which I grandly call my office, currently surrounded by a lot of junk, which is just out of camera shots so that our podcast host can't see it. And just behind me, I have a series of cuddly toys, which are essentially giant microbes. So they're cuddly toys in the shapes of bugs. And out the window, I can see the side of next door's house and a particularly grey sky. So among the giant microbes that I've got include the coronavirus bug. We've also got measles there, a spotty one. There's a blue common cold virus. And there's my favourite bug of all time, the scabies mite, which I tend to do research on when I'm looking at COVID-19. Normally, my background is in public health and that term that everyone's heard a lot of this year, epidemiology, particularly infectious diseases. So I've done a bit of research around pneumonia, hence why I'm now interested in COVID-19, but also scabies, which is a weird skin infection that you see all around the world, including here in the UK and across Europe and the US, particularly in institutions like care homes and prisons and schools. The intensity of the research this year has clearly increased by uh, many sort of levels. Being at home has been a strange time, but it has meant that I've not spent much time travelling, either to the office, which is about an hour's commute, or indeed travelling abroad, where I would go to West Africa three or four times a year, for example. From that point of view, I've managed to get quite a lot done. Being off-site and away from the university, there's actually few bits of administration that come in because people can't see or hear you. So you're kind of out of sight and out of mind. So it's been actually reasonably productive from an academic point of view. Clearly, the topic of my work has changed greatly in terms of having to focus on this new emerging coronavirus, which has taken over the entire world. The intensity of the research, the need to get things done as quickly as possible. Usually, academic life is quite slow and ponderous. You tend to have, go and have a coffee and think about your next project, and then everything takes a long time to do, whereas with COVID-19, everything has to be done yesterday. So the speed of research has certainly been accelerated this year as well. I've occasionally spoken with the media, but it was kind of normally a story that passes in the day, and it's normally kind of page 34 of some one of the national newspapers in column three at the bottom that no one ever actually reads. BBC World Service at three in the morning type job. So the intensity of all of this has been really quite just extreme, really. 
we kind of needed a lockdown period where I wasn't traveling to and from work to have the time of the day to speak to journalists. My research does involve sort of epidemics and outbreaks. So I think the scale of this pandemic has surprised me and probably surprised everyone. When it was an emerging outbreak in China, we thought it might spread around China, maybe to one or two countries, a bit like SARS did about 18 years or so ago. Most of us thought we'd see something a bit like that. But when we started to see spread across many countries and so quickly as well, I think we then knew that this was going to be quite the game changer and it would spread globally. I think the key has been just how far it spread in such a short period of time. Pretty much every country in the world within about six months. One of my yardsticks for has it got everywhere yet was I've got some colleagues in Togo in West Africa, in rural Togo. So my kind of measure was when they get coronavirus in their rural location, a long way away from any cities, then I think we can say that coronavirus is everywhere. And it took about three months to hit rural Togo. I think it's just shown and brought home just how connected the world is and therefore how easy it is for viruses to spread. There are various surveillance websites and journals that report on this. So there were some reports of this unusual respiratory outbreak in China. But reports like that are pretty common, actually. You'll have several of those a year. And they always don't amount to too much beyond a local burden of disease around the outbreak source. The media coverage was very quick, particularly when it started spreading within China. So certainly Western nations, UK and US, got the news pretty quickly. So I think us academics didn't have too much of a head start on it before the public got to hear about it. I think the UK response has surprised me in places for sure. The continued political lethargy around decision-making is unhelpful and does continue to surprise. There are some sort of very clear ways forward where you can suppress the virus with as little impact on public life as possible. And you can reform your test and trace system, as we call it, which then keeps the virus at low levels, which then allows the rest of society to function with some normality. And then also allows other areas of health to run somewhere close to normal. So if you want to go to your hospital appointment because you have cancer or mental health or stroke or something like that. There's too much of COVID around, then the beds are taken up and the hospital isn't functioning very well. There are ways to reduce the impact of that. The government could choose to take them in terms of lockdown, fully functioning contact tracing system to keep cases low, but it continues not to do so for political reasons. There's a lot of tinkering around the edges that makes it look like something's happening, but the measures are clearly ineffective from a public health point of view. One example would be when they didn't want to shut pubs and restaurants. They are often the source of outbreaks. So where burdens are high, it is a good idea to shut anywhere that is the source of an outbreak. But what they did instead was simply force pubs and restaurants to shut one hour earlier, going from 11 o'clock closing to 10 o'clock closing. And that does literally nothing. No one was happy there. The pubs weren't happy. The public health people weren't happy. And unsurprisingly, it had no actual impact upon the pandemic itself. The continued lethargy with decision-making is something that continues to surprise me with the government. They do have ways out of this, but they choose not to take them. The public health messaging is something that is looked at by several people. There are the behavioural scientists and the social scientists who look at how to convey messages to the public, because it is important what you say, but also how you say it. Initially, there was some very clear, good messaging around basically stay at home. Everyone understood the 
importance of the situation. And since then, we've had a sort of few slightly more confused messages coming from decision makers and coming from governments that didn't always actually get run by the behavioural science experts. We do have a behavioural sciences expert advisory group that feeds into the other government advisory groups that kind of inform ministers on what the best course of action would be to do next. And they were often being sidelined throughout this. And I think the government has got that wrong on a few occasions this year. So we're currently about the end of 2020. So the pandemic's been essentially going on for most of the year and has been a problem in most nations since about March or April. Now there is actually a really, well, beyond a glimmer of light, we have solutions that are starting to be rolled out. We have really effective vaccines that have been licensed and starting to be used in the UK and US. Other countries and regions will follow in the coming weeks on that for sure. There's three vaccine candidates that look really good. There's the Pfizer one, which is already being used here in the UK. There's the Oxford AstraZeneca one, which will probably be licensed possibly even before Christmas 2020, but if not soon in the new year 2021. And there's also the Moderna vaccine that, again, will be licensed in UK and Europe, again, in the early part of 2021. That will essentially be the solution to the pandemic, not without caveats and logistical difficulties, but I think within six to nine months, so by the end of 2021, if not a bit earlier, COVID-19 will not be gone, but it will be massively reduced as a public health problem, certainly across the westernised nations. The poorer parts of the world, I think, alas, will suffer from the inequalities and inequities that surround these things. So vaccine distribution will take much longer there to get to them. Rich countries will buy the vaccines first. But the vaccines are on their way, albeit in some places slowly. We need to vaccinate the world, which is 8 billion people with two doses each. So we need 16 billion doses of a vaccine. And we need to get those vaccines, not just to the hospital up the road from me in a town centre, but we also need to get it to hard to access parts of sub-Saharan Africa and also, for example, to the 17,000 islands of Indonesia. So that's going to take a long time, even if there are vaccines available. So I think we're taking a minimum of 12 months from now. So that will take us to the end of 2021, probably halfway into 2022 is when we can expect the world to have been vaccinated and that pretty much everywhere has got COVID down to very, very low levels. We need to check the duration of the immune response from the vaccines. That's one thing we don't know right now. We hope it will last a few years minimum. It might only last a year or two. We might need annual boosters, a bit like the flu vaccine. So that's something that will be monitored very, very closely with every vaccine rollout in every country. So by the time we vaccinated the world once, we might have to do it again. But at least at that point, the urgency will be a bit less and we'll know what we're doing a bit more as well. So it'll be slightly easier then. But there still will be difficulties and COVID-related activities for years to come yet. Until everyone is vaccinated across our population, for example, a national population like the UK, there will still be restrictions in place. We currently have what are called tiered systems, where there are different levels of restriction depending on which part of the UK you live in. We will need still to do things like social distance, to wear masks and wash our hands a lot for the next few months at least until enough of us have been vaccinated. Even though vaccines are starting to be rolled out, the problem hasn't gone away yet. It will still be a few months before the problem does go away. We've seen a lot less flu in the Southern Hemisphere winter, which as I speak has just ended and we're coming into the Northern Hemisphere winter right now where the initial signs are that there is lower levels of influenza. The 
practices and behaviours that are associated with COVID-19 are clearly also effective against influenza as well. Any health service that would have had the double burden of COVID-19 and flu as well, that would have been hugely problematic. So hopefully we can at least get away without one of them this year. There may well have been an impact on other diseases, positive or negative, throughout the year because of lockdowns, less gastrointestinal disease because there's fewer people going to restaurants or having barbecues. There's probably lower deaths from air pollution over the past year. Equally, things like mental health might well be greatly affected in the wrong direction. We still need to disentangle a lot of that data. There'll be an impact both ways on other diseases. We've seen a, a rapid production of the vaccines in terms of their research and development and their rollout. It's been much faster than normal. We have vaccines licensed and more to be licensed soon, I expect. And that's all happened within essentially a 12-month period. The reason for that is the intensity of the research. The whole world has been looking at COVID-19 research. Some of the other data I look at looks at research funding decisions and what research is going on. And I think we will, when we finish that data, see a massive impact upon cancer research and stroke research and other areas of health where everyone's been looking at COVID-19. With the vaccines, everyone's been playing very nicely together. The public sector, the private sector, like the pharmaceutical companies, the regulators, the ethics committees, the institutions that are hosting the research, everything's been done in conjunction with each other in quite a fabulous display of teamwork that we've not seen the likes of before. A lot of research is actually kind of sitting around waiting for things to happen, waiting for the ethics committee to meet, getting their responses back. You probably need to revise the ethics submission a bit to satisfy them. You do that. It's several weeks or months. One particular brilliant aspect of these clinical trials for these new vaccines has been the public response in signing up to be participants. Tens of thousands of people in the UK and probably hundreds of thousands of people around the world have signed up rapidly. It can easily take you 18 months to recruit 5,000 people for a trial normally, whereas we've done that here in three months or so. Everyone who has signed up to be part of a vaccine trial deserves a big pat on the back as well because they have helped to make this vaccine development much, much faster than it otherwise would be. Everyone's played nicely across all sectors and organisations is basically the reason why we've got these vaccines done so fast. No corners have been cut. It's just been done much more efficiently. Normally, vaccines will take from start to finish about a decade. There was some development work already done here on previous coronaviruses that was helpful and also on some of the vaccine platforms that have been used here. So the Oxford vaccine uses an adenovirus vector platform and the Pfizer one uses an mRNA platform. Those platforms have been researched previously. So again, the technology and knowledge from that was useful here. But even with that knowledge in place of being used, you would still expect five to seven years really for a vaccine development. We've done it here in 12 months. There are differences in the vaccine candidates in terms of the temperature they need to be stored at. So the Oxford candidate needs to be stored at refrigeration temperatures like most vaccines do. The Moderna one needs to be stored about minus 20, which makes it a bit trickier to store, transport and roll out than the Oxford one. And the Pfizer one needs to be stored at minus 70 degrees centigrade, which is even colder and much harder to maintain an efficient supply chain across sub-Saharan Africa and Southeast Asia and maybe South America. Mike will look at the Oxford one as their preferred candidate because it can be scaled up and manufactured at bigger quantities. They can make more doses available quickly, but also in terms of getting it to their populations. They can essentially 
transport it in a chilled state rather than needing to invest in infrastructure and technology that keeps something at minus 70. In rural sub-Saharan Africa, for example, they often take the equivalent of kind of like a cool bag that we might sort of keep our drinks cold in. One of those, slightly more sophisticated version, but that's kind of what it is. They might hoik it over their shoulder and then go and paddle in a canoe up a river or take a four by four to halfway up a mountainside to communities there. That's much harder to do if you need to do something at minus 70 degrees. So logistics and cost, Oxford candidate is much cheaper than Pfizer as well. All of these things will play a part in what governments choose to vaccinate their populations with alongside factors like safety and effectiveness. Governments will look at initially getting hold of any vaccines they can that have been licensed. We're looking at Pfizer, we're looking at Oxford, AstraZeneca, we're looking at Moderna. There will be other vaccines coming on board. And for example, Russia and China have their vaccine candidates. I think we can also expect to see vaccines being used for political capital as well. So, for example, across sub-Saharan Africa, there's a lot of Chinese investment, a lot of Chinese aid, all countries really. But if we use China as an example, they probably will donate a lot of vaccines to countries that they have interests in for good PR reasons and for trade purposes. There certainly will be some people who are vaccine hesitant, and you can understand that. There's a pandemic virus, so it's scared everyone out of the wits this year anyway. And there's this vaccine that's been developed pretty rapidly. And people hear and see that vaccines normally take a decade, and this one's been done in a year, so therefore, is it safe? And what we can say is, other than the vaccine speed of development has been because everyone's been playing nicely, and everyone's been done much more efficiently, that no corners have been cut. We've got a lot of really good safety data. The trials are actually much bigger than most clinical trials. So the amount of person time that we have an analysis for is more than you would expect in other trials. So actually, the data we've got to go on is much greater than usual. Really, we've got better safety data than normal as well. So we do know that the vaccines that have been licensed are safe. The safety record is very good. And we know that they are effective as well. There's no reason to be overly suspicious of this vaccine because of any concerns around safety. The data we have is very, very good on that. Even in the UK, about 100,000 people have been vaccinated. About 50 or 1,000 people were part of the Pfizer trial around the world. 150,000 people, several months worth of data, minimal side effects. It's a really good vaccine. With anti-vaccination activists, we distinguish anti-vaccine from vaccine-hesitant. Vaccine-hesitant are people who are a little bit on the fence, who might be persuaded by good or bad public health messaging either way. Anti-vaxxers are the people who are disingenuous and really quite mendacious in feeding vaccine misinformation and lies to the vaccine hesitant. Over here in the UK, we had Andrew Wakefield as one example. Over in the US, the US now has Andrew Wakefield. In fact, he lives there now and spreads his propaganda there. But there's also Robert Kennedy, who is from that Kennedy family, who leads some of the anti-vaccine lobbies in the US. And they spread a lot of misinformation and outright lies about vaccines. And they are a problem. One of the reasons why I do a lot of public communications around infectious diseases generally, but also I do give talks about vaccines and anti-vaccination activists. It is for education and good public health messaging purposes to provide the counter to their arguments and to provide the facts around vaccines. That they are essentially overwhelmingly safe. There are side effects like a a sore arm or you might get a headache for a day or two. There are very rarely bad side effects. 
vaccines are one of the safest tools that we have in medicine. And it is disappointing when you have a solution to a problem, like a solution to a pandemic, you have a vaccine there, but there are people who are actively trying to work against it. The anti-vaxxers could absolutely do real damage. The number of them is actually very small, but they're very good at communicating. So they make a lot of noise. It's important to try to quell that noise as much as we can with some good public health messages. So it is important for scientists to speak out. I think those who are not experts, but are sort of pro-vaccine and reasonably pragmatic about life, it's important that they speak out if they see misinformation. And it's important that people do go and look at reliable websites like the World Health Organization, as an example, rather than necessarily getting our information from dubious YouTube videos or memes on Facebook and things like that. Checking the source of the information is useful in trying to work out if a claim is realistic or not. The anti-vaccines have already been, for the last few months, in their Facebook groups in murky corners of the internet, plotting what side effects they're going to promote the vaccine to have when it comes out. The things about infertility, autism is always one the anti-vaxxers come out with. Every vaccine causes autism these days and various neurological injuries and brain damage. Those lies will already have been pre-written before the vaccine came out and any data emerged. So they are a proactive bunch, which is depressing, but it's true. We need to make sure that the vaccine hesitant and the pro-vaccine lobby are on side. You can't really change an anti-vaxxer's mind because they are so embedded in their conspiracy theories. But the people who are unsure, that's the people who you want to target with good public health campaigns. Right now, on the 16th of December 2020, the government has been considering what to do about Christmas. As far as I'm aware today, they have actually made no changes. So what is going to happen is we're allowed to mingle a bit over Christmas. You can have up to three households meeting. So you can create your own household bubble across five days from the 23rd to the 27th of December inclusive. This, from a public health point of view, is just a very bad idea. There's probably about 50,000 new cases per day of COVID-19 in the UK right now. And that will only get worse and increase with gatherings over Christmas. In the new year, we will see increased caseloads. And from mid to late January 2021, we will see more hospitalizations and deaths as a result of people meeting up over Christmas. The government could have chosen to put in sort of stricter curbs. They've chosen not to. So I do hope that the general public here and other countries as well, depending on what restrictions they have, are cautious about who they meet with and how over Christmas. Again, the usual advice about meeting outside if you can. Clearly, Northern Hemisphere winters don't really allow for much of that. but if you can meet outside, if you can meet for short periods of time indoors, keep doors and windows open as much as you can. Try to reduce any close contact. There's a lot of fuss in the media here about can I hug my granny over Christmas? And really the public health answer is, well, actually, no, you shouldn't, which obviously sounds a bit mean, which is why the politicians are probably avoiding answering that question in its entirety. But we do need to restrict the amount of contact we have with people because it's going to be quite a harsh new year anyway, and we don't want to make it too much worse. There are plenty of examples from around the world where large-scale public festivals have been either cancelled or curtailed due to COVID-19. This actually includes Eid in the UK, which was cancelled at a moment's notice earlier on in the year. And elsewhere, there's been the Hajj, which normally has 2 million pilgrims turning up in Saudi Arabia to Mecca every year. 
This year, it was restricted to a few thousand pilgrims who were selected based on age and levels of fitness so that they were unlikely to be serious cases of COVID if they did catch COVID. And that seemed to have been accepted quite widely by the Muslim community as a sort of pragmatic and responsible thing to do. So that went off without a hitch. In Israel, in Passover, one of the major Jewish festivals, again, there were restrictions put in place to ban intercity travel and household mixing, specifically for that festival. So there are lots of examples around the world. And of course, Chinese New Year, yes, which involves two billion journeys each year. And that was just starting when COVID-19 started spreading around China. So the Chinese government curtailed it, and that will undoubtedly have reduced the number of infections and the speed of spread, which is fast enough anyway, but it will have had a massive public health impact. There are all these examples everywhere where major festivals have been cancelled or curtailed by the government. That probably could and should happen here to a greater extent than we see happening with Christmas. We can be quite optimistic right now. With these vaccines that are looking to be so effective, I think we can look to see life returning to normal in high-income nations really in about nine months' time, I reckon. So kind of end of summer 2021. Enough of the UK, as an example, will have been vaccinated that we can go and meet our friends in the pub. We can go and hug our granny without needing to ask a public health expert if it's all right. We may still need to wear masks in some settings, like if you go into a hospital or a care home, some high-risk areas like that. But going to a shop, I'll be surprised if you need to wear masks come August, September 2021. So I think we can really reset back to 2019 in the relatively near future. I think we can be quite optimistic now about situations like that. The global response has actually been brilliant this year. There's been multi-country collaborations across research. The vaccine development has involved many countries running clinical trials. We've seen a lot of data sharing from around the world, from multi-countries who are putting their data sets into giant databases that allow us to tease out more rigorous findings than would otherwise be the case. That hasn't always happened. This has happened really for the first time in this pandemic. If I use the Ebola outbreak in West Africa from about five years back as an example, there was a lot of selfishness there from the public health people, particularly the researchers actually, who were holding on to their data until they'd got their big publication in something like Lancet or Science or Nature, one of the big journals. And only then did they release their data to the public health agencies. And I was at a meeting in London a couple of years after that, and this was discussed. I didn't realise the extent to which it happened. So actually one of the outputs of that was that the big journals clubbed together and said that we're not going to publish data in a public health emergency unless we've got proof that you've already sent it off to the World Health Organization or the equivalent public body. So the fruits of that have been born in this pandemic where there's been a lot of data sharing very early on, which has been really impressive and wonderful to see. And has definitely helped the response. I think we've seen that globally, the world has been caught short. We were clearly not prepared for a pandemic. Pandemic preparedness, as the phrase is, simply has to be a priority now ahead of the next time and continue to be a priority for the next few years so that we get good surveillance systems in place, particularly in areas that are more likely to produce the next big threat. So Southeast Asia, particularly with actually strains of flu, bird flu and things like that, is potentially a, a problem. And also South America, where there's a lot of bats. And as we've seen with 
coronaviruses, which often come from bats. Bats just house so many viruses that are particularly lethal to human beings. So we need to do a lot of horizon scanning as to what the next big threat is. We need countries to have plans in place. We need them to kind of do their preparation exercises, but then to follow up on the findings and put plans in place. With the UK, in 2016, we had something called Exercise Cygnus, which was essentially a pandemic preparation. Cygnus, as in the swan. There is a reason why these words, sickness, swan, I can't quite remember exactly what the reason is. So we had Operation Exercise Sickness, as in the swan, and that was a pandemic exercise where they did drills, essentially, on what it might be like during a pandemic. And they got everyone involved, including the health secretary, Jeremy Hunt. And Jeremy Hunt then refused to play ball and he stopped getting involved in the exercise and basically wandered off and did something else instead. I think that shows the lack of due care and attention that the UK, along with many other countries, had when it came to pandemic planning. They didn't see it as a likely problem that would necessarily affect us. It would affect a different country, but not us. So I think we need to lose that kind of attitude and properly prepare next time as much as we possibly can. If there is a new pandemic, countries will get hit, and possibly badly, but we can clearly lessen the impact with lessons learned from 2020. I think in terms of there being the next big thing, the next big outbreak or pandemic, sure, there's going to be one. If we'd said five years ago, will there be one, then we'd have said yes, but we just wouldn't know when. They can emerge very suddenly and very quickly, hence why this coronavirus spread around the world within a few months. So you can't react to something that is as transmissible and lethal as that. You have to be prepared and be proactive and have your systems in place. So that's just why the preparation aspect is just so crucial and so important, because we know that something will happen in the future, but we just don't know when. One of the key moments that probably stands out for me in 2020 was when the UK went into full national lockdown. We've never seen anything like that here in the UK before. It was that common word this year, unprecedented, and certainly a national lockdown was. Even though we'd seen it happen in other countries, it still felt very, very surreal at times. We then started seeing videos of a deserted Oxford Street in the centre of London or you know, parts of the UK that would normally be thriving and full of people, completely empty. So I think that was the kind of the moment when, although from a professional point of view, we knew it was getting very real and was going to be pretty bad, that was the moment when I think maybe the general public perhaps fully realised at that point that this was a really serious problem. So I think the kind of emotions around that that went around the UK and within my own family and friends circles I think that's probably the, the moment that stands out for me from 2020. People who I've not heard from in years have sent me a message saying, remember me, I've got a question for you about this. One example, actually, is a, a friend of mine who works in the British fencing industry, as in fencing the sport with swords and stuff. We also had a sort of chat about how the fencing industry should proceed from here, which was quite a surreal moment. I wasn't initially on my bucket list of things to do in 2020, but that's what happened. It's been a different year all round. 2020 has been obviously a very bad year, one of the worst years in human history. But we are ending it on a high note, I think, with the development and rollout of these vaccines, very, very effective vaccines. So I think 2021, it might be a bit of a slow burner to start with, but it is going to get a lot better. So hopefully by the summer, maybe you can even go on your summer holidays without having to worry too much about whether you're going to get COVID-19 anywhere else. You'll be able to go back and see your friends in the pubs. You'll be able to go and see your relatives again a lot more freely. The end of 2021 will be a lot better than 2020 has been. So 
Although it might be a difficult couple of months across the start of the year, it is going to get better. Thank you for listening to Coexisting. It's Lara Lightbody, the producer of the show. If you've enjoyed this episode and would like to hear the story unfold, here is where I need your help. Hit the subscribe button so Coexisting comes up automatically in your feed. Secondly, write a review and rate with stars, especially if you listen on Apple Podcasts. And if there's anyone out there that you think would make a great guest, just get in touch. I'm on Instagram, Facebook or LinkedIn as Coexisting Podcast. That way, that many more people will find us.